0: It's very interesting, um, listening to Abigail. Um, there seems to be much more of a blueprint. Yeah, ghostwriting, there is no blueprint. It could be anything from a huge editing job, you're given a manuscript which is a complete mess, rewrite it, and that's called ghosting, to being told, here is somebody, start from scratch, interview them from scratch, and actually the latter is what I much prefer, it's simpler. It's usually somewhere in between. Somebody's written a bit of a memoir, um, it's gappy, it's not finished and you come in and you fill in the gaps. It's been in the news, of course, ghostwriting this year. There was one weekend I actually flew out to England. If I hadn't, I'd have been on every radio show in the place Um, because it was when Rano Driscoll's ghostwriter had pulled out, Paul Kimmage, he dropped out. Andrew O'Hagan dropped out in England of the um, Julian Assange case. I'm not surprised. There's there's always a difficult patch in ghostwriting. I found it with every book. I forget every time it's coming, but it always comes at one stage. (coughs) And it's just interesting. I'd love to know what the story was behind it. I suspect in that case that he was an autobiographer, not a ghostwriter. In in which I mean, as a ghostwriter, it's not your book. You have to, you know, you might want to keep stories in. And if your ghosty says, no, that's got to go, you have to listen to them and go with it. And I I suspect that in that case, that was what the problem was. Um, It'll be interesting to see how Roddy Doyle gets on with Roy Keane, actually, because I gather he's doing that one. Um, And how long does it take? Again, that's a piece of, you know, like a piece of string. I was approached at one stage about the Katie Taylor book, and that was going to be written in two weeks. 40,000 words in two weeks. Um, I don't know whether it was in the end. I suspect that they had to make it a bit longer. The Mary Fleming book, which I've just done, took me a good six months, but there were a lot of complications there. Not sort of you know not le- least of which she died in the, in the middle of it or, or near the end of it, so i didn 't have very much access to her. Um, the simplest book that this one the diviner um, second one I did with Penguin, that was an absolute delight. It was twelve weeks beginning to end, and I did my journalism at the same time. It was very part time twelve weeks. It was a dream until we did have a little hiccup at the end, as I say you always do there 's always something. Um, but they are it, they're, they're all completely different. You do need journalistic skills, different journalistic skills. In this case, it's much more the feature writer, the interviewer. You have to write, obviously, well, but clearly. Clarity is the key. You have to have enormous confidence in your writing because you're going to get knocked by somebody. They'll tell you, at some stage, someone's going to tell you you can't write and you're doing it wrong. You're going to see it. You know, there's, there's going to be, because you're dealing with other people, you're going to have your confidence not, and you have to know that you know what you're doing. Um, you have to have the ability to structure the book and to keep the narrative going, to keep the page-turning thing going. And in the case of ghostwriting, it is, it is slightly creative. I'm going to actually read a passage and show you how the creative thing comes in. You get their voice in your head to such an extent that you kind of almost know what you think. You can write a scene and send it to them And they'll say, that's how it was, and you've kind of made it up. One ghostwriter said to me that he described a yellow polka dot dress. He just got a flight of fancy um, and and described this yellow dress, again, expecting her to say, well, actually, that dress that night would have been blue. And she said, yeah, I remember that dress. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the publisher telling me that, you know, screamed with laughter. And I said, but it could have happened, because I actually believe that you do get into their heads and you start to know how they talk and how they think. You have to have a passion for ghostwriting. A amount of uh, fiction writers who have said to me, Sue, when are you going to write your own book? As if this is really second-class writing. Uh, it's a different skill. I, I, I'm proud of the skill. I'm proud of what I do, and I think you have to be. Mm-hmm. If you would rather be writing your own novel, then don't ghostwrite, I think. If you're thinking of it as second best, don't do it. Um, you have to have good people skills really vital. You need curiosity, you need patience, you need warmth, you need tact and you need good listening skills because actually you're a counsellor half the time. You're a writer and you're a friend. You get completely enmeshed in their lives and you have to leave your ego at the door to a certain extent. This is the first book that's been published because one I've well, come to nearly was. this us have my name on. Uh, the other ones, it's this really weird thing that you wrote it but you didn't and the publishers acknowledge no. you and say you're great but they don't really want people to know. In one case the ghostie didn't want me- anyone to know. So it's it's kind of weird. You've, you've written this thing um, but you're not allowed to say you wrote it. So this one I've been able to celebrate, it's been wonderful. Um, <coughs> And I've been doing an awful lot of awful self-publicity on Facebook. I apologise to everybody. And there are going to be no more photographs of my book in a bookshop. I promise. Um, So how do you get into it? Um, Well, in my case, the recession came. Journalism was slumping. And I thought, I've always wanted to write a book. So I started off writing this one, uh, which actually is a non-fiction book. It's interviews with 16 people around Ireland who had gone through depression. And it's basically 16 mini-ghostings, if you like. It was quite a nice way in because, you know, they were longer interviews than I would do for my features, and it kind of got me used to that kind of length. And I then approached Poolbeg, actually. and Three publishers, but Poolbeg said, we have somebody for you. Penguin then rang me and asked me to do a... Book which I can't talk about because that's the one where the ghosty didn't want anyone to know, and it was quite an awkward one because they didn't seem to trust me, and they kept ringing Penguin if they weren't happy and not me, and and it was a bestseller, number two bestseller, but it it sold really really well. Um, but I was kind of I've got a vague acknowledgement. It sort of says it says thank you to millions of people, and it <laughs> says thank you to Sue Leonard for something. What was it? I can't remember, but you know it was just in passing. Then they asked me to do this one, which I've already mentioned, The Diviner. Lovely guy. He met in Glendalough every week. He talked for four hours and I used my tape recorder and we got the thing together. (coughs) The main problem with that one was that Penguin said to me, you are not allowed to say that this guy cures cancer. And he said, but I do. Mm -hmm. Here are the cases. So I had to be really tactful and do it so that they were both happy. So I sort of said things like, it might have been the chemo, it might have been my healing, but she lived, Um, and he was happy and they were happy, and and, and it did okay. Then I had a sort of year off when I didn't get the Katie Taylor one, and um, this time last year just as the examiner did their little downward thing and we thought we were going to be really badly off and broke for the whole year, I suddenly got a call from my agent and he said that he had had a call from this man Tom Curran who was the partner of Mary Fleming. And he thought that there was a story here that she'd written this manuscript, a childhood manuscript, and would I have a look at it? Well, I knew, like all of us, who Mary Fleming was. This was after, it was after the case, after they'd taken both cases, and it was before the Supreme Court judgment. It was last January. And I'd heard her, I'd seen her giving her evidence, and I admired her, I thought she was great. So I met Tom, um, and he gave me this manuscript, which was 80,000 words. Childhood manuscript, and of course I was gobsmacked. If anybody has read the book or knows the story or read the extracts in the Indo. Uh, her story is an awful lot more than the right to die. Um, You know, the mother ran off with the senator. There was a court case in 1960, high profile. She was pregnant. She was sent to Belfast Mother and Baby Home, and she managed to get away. And then she had the baby. They took it away for adoption, and she scrambled and got it back again. Oh, and then her marriage failed, and then she got MS, and then the right to die case started. And so she's an extra. but in the middle of all this, having had to leave school at fourteen, she managed to get herself up to university, le- lecturer status. I mean, she is some woman. First time I met them, I will never forget. Um, I'm going completely away from my notes, by the way. Um, I walked into I walked into that house, and and there she was, and this amazing woman with this incredible. Her her aura fills the room. Um, and I just I one of the first questions I asked her was, are you frightened of death? And she started talking about a near-death experience that she'd had. So happens I've had her one, one too, so I was able to say, well, did you see the light at the end of the tunnel? She said, yes, I did. And, you know, we actually had, had a sort of crazy conversation about it. And she was telling me that her father and her dog were there at the end of the tunnel waiting for her. The strange thing about this was that Tom was looking more and more aghast, and he said, you never told me. And Tom then said... You don't know what happened that night. Your heart stopped three times, and I got it going again. And she said, "What?" So there was I sitting with these two people who had been together for eighteen years, hearing these stories that they never told each other, and it was a joy. I mean, it was a terribly painful year. You know, the amount of times I was going to see Mary, and she'd had another infection, and she wasn't well enough, and it was up and down. And um, so, how I did that one, having we. I, I condensed that 85,000-word memoir into about 25,000 words. That's what we sold. We offered it to. Um, we we contacted the four publishers in Ireland who will pay, which is basically Penguin, Hachette, I mean pay well, better, Penguin, Hachette, Transworld, and Gillam Macmillan. Sent them to all four. They all four expressed interest. We had this crazy date where we were dodging from one hotel to another, meeting all four of them. They Three of them offered, and we went with Hachette, who were amazing. And, and by that stage, I had been down to my week in the equivalent of the cottage. I had done that. I had been down to Anna McCarrick. Had an amazing week in Anna McCarrick where I got 30,000 words done. Um, and I'd written by the stage that they bought it probably about 70,000 words. When we got to the first edits, that's where the problems with this one happened, because Tom... It wasn't, you know, I, kept, I sent them the stuff and said please can I have your changes and they didn't give them but he wanted to see the published. but because I had written it, a lot of the interviews had been with Tom and Karina at that stage it was in their voices and I couldn't see how I was going to change, I mean I thought it was okay actually, that's how we sold it but the publisher said at that stage it doesn't really work, you're going to have to put that into Mary's voice and my first reaction was, that was the moment that I thought "Oh, Jesus, I've spent Probably yet five months on this book already. How, how am I going to do that? It's impossible because I, by doing it in Karina's voice, we didn't have to know how Mary felt when she'd been diagnosed. I didn't know that story. She was ill. I couldn't get 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 access to her. But we managed, and actually, it was very easy to change it. And I changed Tom's voice while I was at it, and it somehow was very easy because Mary's voice is in my head. And I was down at Tom's house. He's standing for a local election, and a lot of the friends were there. It was on Saturday, and. Four people came up to me and said, that was Mary talking from the page. Um, so it, it was easy because she's got this... I, I just know how she talks. Um, and it and it made the book ten times better. I mean, thank God she made me do that, much as I hated her at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in that case, uh, we were on the sub-eds when she died. Um, I wasn't quite happy with the ending at the time, and bless Mary, she had left a letter to be read in the church, which we actually use as the end of the book. Um, she thought of everything. Um, she, she had, we had done enough, but it was horribly sad. We were trying to print a book to get to her, and she has a book in the grave, but it arrived, we got it too late to present it to her, but it's in the grave. So what are the advantages of ghostwriting over, as, a, as, a, as an addition to journalism, which in my case it is? Well, it's nice collaborating. It's social, and you don't have to make up the story. But you do have, you know, it's it's kind of how it is. It's like a love story. Okay, you meet somebody, you get on well with them. They think you're amazing because you're listening to them, and they can talk and talk and talk, and you're listening, and they love you. And then the nearer it gets to publication, and there's, sometimes it's literally on the last reading, sometimes it's coming up to the last edit, they will panic, and they'll suddenly say, "You can't use that. I can't say that about my sister." There's always something, and there's always this horrible, horrible hiccup. But, it, you know, so that is the disadvantage, really. And you have to take stories out, um, sometimes because they, they insist on it, sometimes because of the legal. Um, so I'd like to just, if I may, read a quick passage out of my time. Absolutely. Um, and then I'll just tell you sort of... What was, what was me and what was real and how it came together and so on it's my, it happens to be our favourite passage of course, written in Anna McCary. Okay, this, to give you context Mary has been diagnosed with MS sometime. she's just arrived back in Ireland it's still remitting so she, it's not obvious yet she's met Tom she realises there's something in this relationship and they are spending their first weekend together on Sunday morning we went to Clogger Beach near Arco Tom was throwing sticks into the sea for Ben, and I thought, I must tell him now. I must let him leave before he gets in too deep. So I tugged his arm and said, I've got something to tell you. He turned immediately, aware from the urgency of my tone that this was serious. What is it? I wrapped my scarf more tightly around my neck and said, This is hard. I'm listening. I looked him straight in the eye. I've got MS. You mean multiple sclerosis? That's right, do you know what that is? He nodded. Yes, that cellist, Jacqueline Dupre, she had that, didn't she? And ended up in a wheelchair alone and unloved. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Tell me, he said. What, the technical stuff? Yes, please. Right. I took a deep breath. I I started getting sick when Simon was a baby. An MRI scan confirmed it when I first lived in Wales. It showed that I had four exacerbations at the top of my spine and that meant that it would affect my motor functions rather than anything else. Motor functions? That means walking, talking, lifting, swallowing and possibly feeding. I felt tears leak from my eyes. Noticing, he threw his arms around me and hugged me tightly. I felt safe and buried my face in his chest. But then, extricating myself, I said, ''Let me finish. Okay.'' So far, the results have been spot on. Meaning? At the moment, I have relapsing <coughs> MS. It started as general weakness. I got flu-like symptoms and had to, have to take a day or two off work. That wasn't too much of a problem. Then I would get periods where I couldn't walk properly. I'd develop a limp. Then it would suddenly go, and I'd be fine for months. The problem is the future. You mean the wheelchair thing? I was so scared back then of losing the ability to walk that just the word made me shake. I grimaced. They talk of that, but Tom, it won't happen to me, it just can't. I promise you, I'm going to fight it all the way. But the worst-case scenario? My functions could go, one by one. They tell me that some people need full-time care. That's okay. What? I assumed I misheard him. I said, that's okay. I stared at him, wondering if he'd lost his reason. How is that okay? We'll deal with it. This was mad. Tom, listen, you have absolutely no obligations here. We've just met. I'm only telling you because th- this because it wouldn't be fair on either of us to get closer without you knowing. I've said, it's okay. No. I punched him on the arm and he automatically rubbed the spot. Don't give me an answer now, I said. You have to go away and think about this. Okay. He started to walk down the beach. I watched him with a sense of resignation. Then after just ten or so paces, he turned round and strode back towards me. He said, right. I thought about it (laughs) and I'm not going anywhere I wept he held me close until Ben who had been herring up and down the beach started barking and when that had no effect he jumped up at the two of us breaking the tension and leaving damp sandy paw marks all over our overcoats okay so for that I knew that Tom I knew they'd had this conversation I knew they'd had it the first weekend and I knew that Tom, she'd said, you can walk, and that Tom said, I won't, and he said it immediately. The rest of it i made up, basically. But I imagined that it would be on a beach. I sort of shut my eyes and thought, where would you tell somebody that? And I thought, probably on a beach. So I wrote that scene, ready to send it to them, and I expected him to say, well, that's more or less a conversation, but actually it was by the fire, or whatever, and I would rewrite it. But he loved it, and she loved it, and they talked about it as their romance scene. And it was only actually the sub-edits... It was slightly different in that I didn't... At the sub-edits, when Tom was talking about the fact that Marie had never accepted her MS, I said, what do you mean she... Because ha-? I hadn't got that bit about her, her not saying, it's not. I'm never going to be in a wheelchair. But he said that, she had, that he knew what would happen and she didn't. So I, that, I changed that bit. Because I had it more than, oh yeah, I'll end up in a wheelchair. I thought she'd accepted it. So that was the only thing that changed. So that's what I mean, you know, you can use your creative thing. Obviously you bung dialogue in all the, all the time. Um, so it's, it's that kind of mixture of the fact and the fiction. And it's a very rewarding thing to do. Was there a dog? There was a dog, oh, I him as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I knew they adored the dog. It, it's th- what I'm doing now, in fact, I'm working on a, a project that I can't talk about exactly what it is at the moment. But I was approached by a London agent, um, who I'm working with, although I'm not, I I can't be represented by them because I've got my Dublin agent, but which is complicated. Uh, So I'm putting everything through the Dublin agent, but they have a project for me and I've written a proposal, which is for the English market. And we're at that stage now where they are nearly ready to try and sell it. Now, if you don't manage to get a publisher or an agent approaching you, you, what can you do if you want to ghost? You have someone who wants to tell their story you have two alternatives. You either agree, and I'm doing this for a few people now, you write a proposal for them. You charge us something and you write the proposal. And If if you can sell it, then you'll get a contract and you'll be paid something by the publisher. Or you could do, if they want to self-publish, you could charge them and do the whole thing. It's I, difficult to know how much you charge in that case because people who want their stories written don't usually... Have very much money, or say they haven't, and it, it's a, it, that's a tough one. But that's another way you can do it. And I know someone in England who actually had a business where she did vanity ghostwriting, and she would do a package for people where she'd put it on Kindle, she'd get give them twenty copies of the book, and she would write the thing for them. Um, so those are the various ways you can do it. But it is a lovely thing to do. You you know you don't have to keep hounding. Editors all the time for commissions. You can right, I do much less journalism now. As it gets in the way, but it's nice always to have a project you can work on. You know when when the journalism might be quieter. So I do highly recommend it, and it very much is a skill that journalists do have. I mean, are there any sports books written that aren't ghosted by journalists? Very few, I think. That's about it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I've got, I've got, uh,